Well, forgiveness is powerful. Forgiveness is powerful. Maybe you've heard the stories or you've seen perhaps the remarkable scenes, maybe in a courtroom, those who have had harm done to them or directly or indirectly, or who have been sinned against issue these powerful statements of forgiveness, extending grace and mercy in a setting where it seems it ought not be. These sorts of stories compel a myriad of human emotions, incite a myriad of human emotions, and they affect the human psyche in ways we often don't quite understand. Though they're often coupled sometimes in those settings with religious sentiments, because I believe such, thus I'm showing forgiveness, we find that these examples of forgiveness over and over again are demonstrated in all walks of life. That acts of forgiveness, demonstrations of mercy, transcend geographical, cultural, socioeconomic, religious boundaries. We see forgiveness everywhere. And yet, we're convinced that the impulse we see to extend grace and the impulse we feel at times to extend grace, to demonstrate mercy, the inclination we have to forgive is rooted deeply in the heart and the character of the one true living God. One true living God, his heart is where all of this springs from. And the shadow of the way that our God forgives is long. And it falls over each one of us such that in every instance we see of forgiveness in our world, in our culture, it reminds us of the forgiveness, the grace that's offered to us by God through Jesus Christ. All of it's an echo. There is no doubt grace and forgiveness are powerful tools. They're powerful tools. In our context, grace and forgiveness are powerful tools at the disposal of those who follow Jesus. They're our tool belt. The reason these instances and stories of forgiveness in our culture are so remarkable is that they are so obviously not the norm. They feel out of place. So we give them the headline story and we give them the news article. Yet, forgiveness and this demonstration of grace, this extension of mercy, ought to be ordinary among us. It ought to be the way that we live. It ought to be our default posture. As believers, we have an opportunity to lead out in demonstrating grace and forgiveness. And here's the kicker. We are well-resourced when it comes to extending mercy. We have all that we need to extend mercy. So we'll see in our passage today that we are to forgive as we have been forgiven. That we are to forgive as we have been forgiven. If you have a Bible, turn with me. We'll be in the book of Matthew today in chapter 18. If you don't have a Bible available to you, there's one underneath the seat in front of you you can use today. And if you don't own a Bible, we as a church would love to give you one. There's a table in the back. There's a sign that says free Bibles. You can feel free to pick up one on your way out. So as you're turning to Matthew chapter 18, we're continuing in our series, Matthew, the first book of the New Testament. If you're new to reading the Bible, as you open up the book of Matthew, the larger numbers you'll find there are chapter numbers. Smaller numbers there are verses. So we'll be in Matthew chapter 18, verses 21 through 35. Verses 21 through 35. 
So you can read along silently as I read our passage this morning aloud. Verse 21. Then Peter came up and said to him, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times? And Jesus said to him, I do not say to you seven times, but 77 times. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. When he began to settle, one was brought to him and owed him 10,000 talents. And since he could not pay, his master ordered him to be sold with his wife and children and all that he had and payment to be made. So the servant fell on his knees, imploring him, have patience with me and I will pay you everything. Verse 27, and out of pity for him, the master of that servant released him and forgave him the debt. But when the same servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii. And seizing him, he began to choke him, saying, pay what you owe. 29, so his fellow servant fell down and pleaded with him, have, have patience with me and I will pay you. He refused and went and put him in prison until he should pay the debt. When his fellow servants saw what had taken place, they were greatly distressed, and they went and reported to their master all that had taken place. 32, then his master summoned him and said, you wicked servant, I forgave you all the debt because you pleaded with me, and should not you have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And in his anger, his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all his debt. 35, so also my heavenly father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. We'll look at our passage today in two points. We'll first see the radical nature of the grace we are to give. The radical nature of the grace we give. And we'll also see the spiritual danger of harboring Bitterness, the radical nature of the grace we give, and the spiritual danger of harboring bitterness. First, as we consider Jesus' teaching, we want to note the complexities that attend situations that involve wrongdoing and forgiveness, sin and forgiveness. All of it's fraught with difficulty. There are hundreds, thousands of situations we can think of that require more nuance, more wisdom to be applied, more guidance than what we see only in today's passage. So as a kind of caveat, let me say that what's covered today is not all that needs to be said about the topic of forgiveness. And further, it's not all that the Bible has to say about forgiveness. So this is a great comfort to us that this book, the Bible, from cover to cover, from the moment we see in Genesis 3, the God fashioned garments of clothing for Adam and Eve and their sin, to this glimpse we get in Revelation of believers gathered at the marriage supper of the Lamb, this collection of books is all about forgiveness. It's a book about grace. So as we're looking to be resourced in the way to be a forgiving people, we have what we need. When it comes to how we might live our lives as a forgiving people, we don't need to do that uninformed. The scriptures teach us much about what it means to extend grace and to forgive. So if forgiveness then is sort of this house that we're to live in, then this passage today that we're in in Matthew 18 will be one of the rooms of it. In many ways, we'll find that this passage in Matthew 18 today as we kind of go throughout this story that Jesus tells is actually the solid foundation 
upon which our lives as a forgiving people is built. In the previous passage, Curtis preached last week, we had this thorough outline of a process that we are to engage when a brother or sister within the family of God wanders into sin, goes astray. Jesus lays out these steps in 15 through 20, if you'll remember, that we looked at as those still within the fold, these steps that those still within the fold are to take in great hopes of restoring a brother or sister from sin back into the fold. That's the point of the process. Parts of the process sound harsh, seem a little extreme. This is something we discussed last week. But that's because God is both serious about sin and he's serious about our salvation. He's serious about our salvation. So that process in 15 through 20 is never to be seen or treated as a careless approach to get rid of somebody who kind of annoys us. Rather, we engage in the process with our full hearts leaning into our lives of our brothers and sisters who are found in sin. We grieve sin issues between brothers and sisters, and we seek earnestly the restoration of those who are in error. This is our posture towards sin. This is our posture towards brothers and sisters found in sin. And we see as Jesus unfolds each step of the process, Peter now in verse 21 comes to Jesus with an honest question. No doubt prompted by Jesus' teaching on what forgiveness ought to look like or seeking after the sinner ought to look like, Peter now comes with an honest question, one that you and I might very well have. Verse 21, then Peter came up and said to him, to Jesus, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times? Remember how Jesus framed his teaching in 15 to 20. If your brother or sister sins or sins against you, If sin occurs, do these steps. So now Peter, in essence, is circling back, coming to Jesus and saying, all right, in light of the process that you've laid out, exactly how many times within the fold is this sort of exchange going to occur? How often do we need to be involved in the business of asking forgiveness, seeking restoration, receiving forgiveness? How many times will my brother sin against me And then in that moment, will I need to forgive him? This is Peter's question, and it's a reasonable question. Jesus, this is an intense process. Is it going to happen all the time? Is it going to last forever? For his part, Peter has a number in mind, right? He comes equipped. He's thinking through the process, and we don't have a real reason here given. There are some guesses as to why Peter chooses seven. But if we were to apply some of our own logic maybe to the situation, it kind of sounds like this. As I'm thinking through issues of sin and forgiveness, once would be okay, right? My brother or sister sins against me. I could could forgive once. We could kind of let that go and kind of live our lives. We'll be fine. Two or three times, some tension. It's a little difficult. You sinned against me. I forgave you. Now you've done it again. I forgave you. Now you've done it again. Forgave you, right? A little tension. Four or five times, things get awkward, Is this just how we're going to live our lives? You're just going to sin against me and I'm going to forgive and then vice versa, I'm going to sin. This is just how it's going to be. Five times gets a little awkward. But here we have Peter coming to Jesus and what Peter has learned and what we no doubt know about Jesus by this point in the gospel is that Jesus in his teaching is going to Jesus. He's going to Jesus. 
He's going to do the Jesus thing. He's going to raise the bar. He's going to turn the table. He's going to do the shock and awe. And so Peter comes equipped for the moment, doesn't he? Five times will be awkward, so certainly Jesus would make it more awkward. Seven. It's got to be seven. Jesus, how often will sin occur in the camp? How often will sin occur between my brothers, sisters, and I? How often will I need to forget? Could you imagine even doing it seven times? If you could fathom that, Jesus. Peter underestimates the link, the link to which Jesus, Jesus is. Not seven times, Jesus says, but 77 You'll see in other translations, if you're using one today, that the number is twisted in, in certain ways as to reflect difference in linguistics. 70 times seven, 77 times seven. And the number here that Jesus responds with is somewhat beside the point. What Jesus is after here is this above and beyond approach to forgiveness. Two things are particularly striking in Jesus' answer. First, and most obviously, the amount of times Jesus says we are to forgive. Clearly, with this answer, Jesus isn't giving 77 or any other number as the definitive number, such that we go home, we create a chart, 77 boxes, we put it on our refrigerator, and we await that blessed day. But sin number 78 comes, and we're scot-free. Clearly, this isn't what Jesus has in mind, is it? Jesus isn't pointing at or looking at 77 as the number, the hinge upon which forgiveness and non-forgiveness, unforgiveness weighs. Jesus here is introducing, hear this, a radical reorientation of what person-to-person -person relationships look like within the family of God. A radical reorientation of what person-to-person -person relationships look like in the family of God. We are to go above and beyond in our willingness to forgive one another. And hear this today, if given the option to harbor bitterness or resentment or to lash out in anger, our regenerated hearts, our believing hearts now are set by default to a mode of forgiveness. This is the process within which we are considering the sin that has been demonstrated against us. We're actually looking as believers for a way to forgive. How crazy is that? We're on the hunt for an opportunity to forgive. The second striking aspect of Jesus' answer is how often he implies that sinful offense will occur between believing brothers and sisters, right? So the striking thing about the teaching to you may not be that Jesus requires above and beyond demonstrations and, and exhibitions of forgiveness. That may not be the crazy part of the passage to you. Perhaps you're taken aback a bit by the fact that Jesus implies that sin would occur that much within a context like this anyway. That seems pretty crazy. That amongst believing persons, brothers and sisters, people who love one another in light of God's love for them, that there would be 77 occasions for forgiveness anyway. The picture of the church we see over and again in scripture, we're reminded is not of a group of people working from a baseline of perfection than scrambling to figure out things when something goes awry, but we are people who are wholly leaning on the perfection of Jesus Christ as the foundation for all of our living and our being and our doing. The church is comprised, it's made up of individuals who are well aware of our sinful tendencies. 
that sin will occur between believing brothers and sisters. We're well aware of our sinful tendencies, perhaps some blind spots, yes. Things we'll learn along the way. We pray in a gracious way. But overall, the confessions of believers within the church is not that we're without sin. The confession is that we've joyfully accepted grace offered to us freely through Jesus, who came as a friend to sinners like us. If Jesus is teaching here that forgiveness would be required above and beyond 77, 70 times 7, so much among the people of God, if that teaching shatters the notion that the church is perfect, then that isn't the worst realization we could have today. Anything that makes us more wholly dependent on God for the sustenance that we need is a good thing. It's a good thing. It presses us in and it pushes us in and causes us to lean on God. Charles Spurgeon, the famous 19th century British Baptist pastor, once said of his search for a perfect church and looking for a perfect church, he wrote, if I had never joined a church till I found one that was perfect, I should never have joined one at all. And the moment I did join it, if I did find one, I should have spoiled it. For it would not have been a perfect church after I joined it. So in a very real, humbling, kind of humility-inducing way, this is our contribution to the family of God. An opportunity for those to our left and right, those we link arms with, an opportunity for them to demonstrate grace and forgiveness. This is our humble contribution, that we're all in this linked together. Spurgeon ends that reflection writing, still as imperfect as she is, the church is the dearest place on earth to us. And what Spurgeon has in mind when he calls the church the dearest place is not in our context these four walls or the steeple out front, nor would he have in mind this this or that ministry approach or a program or a style of worship or a particular curriculum. Rather, the church is this people who have committed to lovingly walk alongside with one another, demonstrating grace and forgiveness toward one another, calling one another to account and forgiving one another in the same way that we've been forgiven. This is the dearest place. It's a dear people whom God has chosen as his own. So from Jesus' answer, this above and beyond approach, we get the sense that as believers, we will need to, A, and hear this, we'll need to forgive more often than we think we ought to. If I have within my mind the notion that I'm going to forgive a set amount of times, I'm wiping that off the table. Jesus' answer indicates that we'll likely need to forgive more often than we think we ought to. And B, we will need to forgive more often than we probably feel like it, more often than we probably feel like it. Corey Ten Boom famously said when she prayed in a moment of needing to demonstrate this massive amount of forgiveness for a serious situation that she prayed and asked God, God, I'm going to reach out my hand. I'm going to extend forgiveness and I need you to bring the feeling. I need you to bring that alongside. We're going to need to forgive more often than we probably feel like it. Now, of course, this reality is attended to by a lot of difficulty in our day, and we ought to acknowledge that. Every situation is not so neat. There's the question of someone's willingness to admit they're wrong. 
Some situations require more wisdom to be applied. And yet, this is the base level impulse that we're striving for together. That in the moment we're tempted to believe that we're entitled to better treatment or justified in a certain kind of response, often as, more, as sinful as the initial response anyways, instead we peel back from the situation and we ask the question, is this situation one that I can lead out in forgiveness? demonstration of mercy and grace towards the one who has offended me. This is the default posture of our believing hearts. And so what's the basis for all this? Am I, from day to day, supposed to drum up this ability to ask that question and have this default posture by myself? Is it incumbent upon me to every day kind of take stock of my situation and say, I need to somehow generate this feeling that I need to process forgiveness in such a humble way? Is this is the pressure of this situation, the weight of this situation on my shoulders. Jesus doesn't seem to think so. Coupled with this radical teaching on forgiveness, this above and beyond approach to grace, Jesus then tells a story. He paints a picture of what motivates this kind of forgiveness. Jesus indicates what compels us to forgive. In the parable, you'll see in verse 23, a king approaches a servant who owes him a great sum of money. Verse 23, therefore the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. And when he began to settle, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. Again, some debate on 10,000 talents, the exact amount here. But what's evident from all accounts is that this amount, 10,000 talents, is an exorbitant amount that this servant owes his master, such that it actually can't be repaid. Some commentators have this at 200 years worth of labor, 200 years worth of labor. One commentator, it felt like he kind of gave up, but he just said that this number's somewhere in our trillions. That's the kind of debt that he owed. And we want to note that, the severity, the amount. We want to note how large this debt is that this man owes. It's revealed in the story that the man cannot repay 25, and since he could not pay, his master ordered him to be sold with his wife and his children and all that he had, and for the payment to be made. Because the servant cannot pay, the king first wishes for the man, his family, all his possessions to be sold, to recoup some of the amount that he's owed, even though it wouldn't scratch the surface nearly of the debt that he was entitled to. The servant pleads in verse 26 with the master for more time to repay. So the servant fell on his knees, imploring him, have patience with me, and I'll pay you everything. Give me one more chance to make this right. And then in this awe-inspiring moment, in verse 27, something that we kind of assume maybe about the Christian faith at this point, are tempted to gloss over in our day today, is this moment that changes the trajectory of everything. In verse 27, and out of pity for him, the master of that servant released him, and he forgave him the debt. The reason it's important to point out the quantity, the amount of the debt that the servant owed is because it reflects over onto the amount of forgiveness that's being shown. It reflects over onto the amount of forgiveness that's being shown. There's proportionate relationship here. 
The man owed this great debt, and yet, instead of demanding what he was entitled to, the master comes and he forgives him of that debt. The relationship between the master and the first servant reflects our relationship to God in various ways, and yet we note this, that it doesn't lay one for one over onto our theological understanding of salvation. So we're not looking at this parable that Jesus uses and trying to match each and every part of it to sort of our story of salvation or the gospel story. There are parts that just don't fit. Rather, there are general principles here that Jesus is teaching that shine light on the gospel. General principles apply. We find here, and hear this, a master who gives grace and forgiveness, and he does so lavishly towards someone who is completely, completely undeserving. Demonstrates lavish grace towards someone who is completely undeserving. The parable underscores the biblical concept of what we call unmerited grace. Favor we did not earn. And this is the essence of the gospel story that we have received from God unmerited grace through the life, death, resurrection of Jesus. It's the heart of the gospel. It's right for us then to find commonality between ourselves and this servant as those who have received grace that we did not deserve. We find encouragement here to reflect on the great lengths God has gone to in order to extend mercy and grace to us. All that we have done, the many ways we've sinned against God that effectively put us in God's debt, and yet through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, God has declared that we need not pay any of it. We need not pay the penalty for it. We are recipients ourselves of a radical kind of forgiveness. It would help me personally, and I think you too, to be reminded of that more often. Of this blessed gift of the gospel that we've received, this mercy and grace shown to us, poured out on us. This is what motivates us, you and I, toward a radical demonstration of grace and forgiveness toward others. There's an expectation here also that the one who has now received grace will then go and extend similar grace and forgiveness to others. Verse 28, but when the same servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii, and seizing him, he began to choke him, saying, pay what you owe. As we noted, the exorbitant amount in the first servant's story, we note the in proportion much smaller amount here, that this servant that the first servant now goes to owes significantly less than the first servant did, that the offense is somewhat trivial in the scheme of things. And yet, note the second servant's response. He demands that he pays what, he's, what he owes. 29, so his fellow servant then falls down and pleads with him, have patience with me. And I will pay you the very same plea that the first servant himself had made. Verse 30, he refused and he went and he put him in prison until he should pay the debt. When his fellow servants saw what had taken place, they were greatly distressed. And they went and reported to their master all that had taken place. So the servant leaves the master's presence, finds this fellow servant who happens to owe him a small amount of money significantly smaller than the first. And when it's revealed that the second servant cannot pay his debt, the first servant refuses to extend the grace that he himself has received. He has his fellow servant in prison until the debt can, we, can be repaid. Now, what's implied here 
What Jesus isn't saying directly, but what's gathered from the story is that there's an expectation that the first servant, having received forgiveness from his master, that he should now go and reflect that same kind of forgiveness and mercy towards those he encounters. We are to forgive as we have been forgiven. This age-old Christian adage, right, makes sense. I've heard it before. It's on the poster. It's on the church sign. The question for us today, is that apparent in our daily lives? Does the phrase sound familiar? Hopefully it's a great comfort to you that you know that we're not trying to spin spiritual principles out of thin air. The idea that we are to forgive as we have been forgiven is here in the text. Now, does that mean it doesn't sound crazy? Not necessarily. Sounds a bit outlandish. The parameters of what God requires from us often extend further than we'd like them to. Often his commands sound a little intense. But here is such a case that we are reminded that our Savior has not come to reinforce the status quo. He's not come to reinvigorate our longing for comfort or ease. He's come to guide us along this path toward pursuit of holiness as we link arms together, striving alongside one another to become more like him every day. The second servant fails to follow through in forgiving as he himself has been forgiven. We find too in the passage that he is rebuked strongly by his master. And then he's punished by being forced to pay the full amount that he originally owed. And the picture here is stark. Verses 32 through 35. Then his master summoned him and said to him, you wicked servant. I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. And should, you, should not you have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? In other words, should you not have forgiven in the same way that you've been forgiven? Verse 34, and in his anger, his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all his debt. And Jesus issues this stark warning in verse 35. So also my heavenly father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. What Jesus is after here in his teaching is demonstrating the point that the servant's refusal to extend forgiveness and our refusal to extend forgiveness is a reflection of our hearts and our understanding of the grace that we ourselves have received, our understanding of the gospel, our willingness or unwillingness to demonstrate grace, forgiveness, is a reflection of our understanding of our own sinfulness and indebtedness toward God and the grace and the mercy we receive from God in the life, death, and the resurrection of Jesus. Jesus' final warning here is sobering. There's great significance given to whether or not we demonstrate true grace and forgiveness. He says, from our hearts. This is the essence of forgiving as we have been forgiven. And so this isn't a glossing over of the offense at hand. This isn't a setting aside of what's actually occurred between brothers and sisters. This isn't me saying verbally or indicating some other way that, yes, I forgive you, but sort of pocketing this for a later occasion, some later, greater use. Jesus categorizes this type of radical forgiveness as forgiveness from the heart, true 
lasting, deep, earnest, honest forgiveness. That's what this looks like. It's to be understood that our willingness to demonstrate grace and forgiveness in a way that our willingness to do so in a way that reflects sincerity and genuineness is a reflection of our understanding of the gospel. How we extend mercy, grace, forgiveness toward other people says a lot what we think about, a lot about what we think about the gospel and the spiritual condition of our hearts in relation to God. It's a one-to-one reflection. My willingness, my unwillingness to extend mercy and grace says much about what I believe is true about the gospel. Think that I have sinned and that I've been forgiven much, my willingness to follow that up, forgiveness and mercy demonstrated, extended toward others. They cohere, reflect one another. The question we ought to ask, knowing that we are to forgive and in this way, this over and above, beyond measure of forgiveness and grace, the question we ought to ask. Or what are some of the barriers that you and I face in forgiving in this way? From the text, we don't glean a lot of these, but wisdom applied, the biblical witness to the issue of forgiveness in our day, we want to note at least two. What are some of the barriers that you and I face, knowing that this is the way we are meant to live, knowing, the way this is, or knowing that this is the way that Jesus has called us to live? What are some of the barriers that we face? Well, number one, sin is complex. Sin is complex. Maintaining peace and unity is the goal of addressing sin within a context like this. We want peace, we want unity, therefore sin must be addressed. But we don't achieve peace or unity by glossing over sinful offense. It's messy complex. The peace we're after, the unity we're striving after is not achieved by ignoring. One commentator has written about this passage that the forgiveness that makes peace possible is not without judgment. The forgiveness that makes peace possible is not without judgment. The type of forgiveness that makes actual peace and actual unity possible It's the type of forgiveness that calls someone on their sin. That's what happens. It's what occurs. It's a serious interaction. What kicks all this into motion is that sin occurred in the first place. The need for forgiveness, the need for mercy to be extended arises because there's sin in the first place. It's why that particular commentator says that the church needs to be diligent in maintaining language that calls sin what it is. In order for true forgiveness to be issued, true sin must be identified, pointed out. Sin is complex and it's messy. And this is a barrier for us. I want forgiveness. I want unity. I've got to have a conversation about sin. It requires something of us. Now, if we're honest, the majority of instances of sin and demonstrations of forgiveness will happen within the ebb and flow of your and my everyday life. By the time you and I lay our heads on our pillow tonight, this is what will have occurred. The odds are very great that you and I will have offended someone or have been offended. We live our lives experientially. We know this is how our day occurs. And by the time this day ends, that sin will somehow have occurred within the scope of that. 
And yet, the odds are also pretty high that when we're sinned against or we sin, forgiveness will be sought within that context in some way. Thinking of relationships with my friends, my children, my spouse. These are the categories in which sin occurs on the daily and forgiveness is demonstrated and mercy given in ways that do not grab headlines, in ways that do not warrant the bringing of more witnesses, in ways that won't be talked about before the church. This is the natural ebb and flow of the Christian life. This is the daily ebb and flow of the Christian life. We often sin or are sinned against and within the context of that relationship, mercy and forgiveness are demonstrated. This is just us leaning into Jesus' teaching. We are by default a forgiven people who have been forgiven, and so this is the way we live our lives. And yet, what we know experientially is that it's not always this neat. For lack of being able to address every specific situation, here are a few things that may help us frame our expectations as we move into more serious instances of sin and forgiveness. First of all, as we go to forgive or demonstrate forgiveness, mercy towards someone who has sinned against us, we ought not expect that in the moment of our extending forgiveness that it guarantees anything in terms of a response. That it guarantees anything in terms of a response. Nor does it set into motion this guaranteed chain of events. And what I mean to say by all that is that if you choose today, in this moment that we have to reflect at the end of service today, if you choose, I'm going to extend forgiveness, I'm going to extend mercy, that in some cases when you go to do that, the clouds may not part. The sun may not peek through, birds may not be chirping, either a person doesn't think they need forgiveness The person won't receive forgiveness. We could list a myriad of these situations. The clouds may not part, and yet, it doesn't reflect on our position in such a way that we ought not forgive. We're still compelled to forgive. Our decision and choice to forgive is not contingent upon what we perceive a response might be. Our decision and choice to forgive is contingent upon what Jesus has done for us. And so with that grid in mind, I'm choosing now to forgive. In addition, forgiveness doesn't necessarily mean that restoration of a relationship exactly as it was is a guarantee. Because I choose to extend forgiveness and mercy toward another, things may not be exactly the way they were prior to. It's a reality for us in a sinful and a fallen world. We cannot control outcomes. Is that our great hope? Absolutely it is. Is that what we are going to contend and fight for? Absolutely it is. Are there situations in life such that that relationship may never look exactly the same? Unfortunately, yes. We spoke last week in great length about situations of abuse and wanted to clarify. And this would be one of those sections that we would clarify in is that in choosing to demonstrate, extend forgiveness, perhaps even for your own good toward someone who is abusing you, there's no encouragement that you would restore that relationship and re-enter into an abusive relationship and that it ought to be exactly as it was before. It ought not be. There will be cases where the relationship is not restored one for one, and it's something we need to grapple with as believers. 
Lastly, forgiveness doesn't mean avoidance of earthly consequences. Because you and I choose to forgive, there's some mechanism in place. We think of our legal system. If there's some mechanism in place where earthly consequences will still be dabbed out, our Christian unction and our Christian desire to forgive doesn't necessarily preclude earthly consequences in that situation. And yet, the posture of our hearts should be bent toward forgiveness, even as other mechanisms in place enact justice and we entrust God with the outcomes. The first barrier we face is that sin is complex. I can't scratch the surface of every instance today, you can tell. The second barrier we face is that forgiveness is costly. Forgiveness is costly. Instead of one paying for what they've done, when we extend mercy and forgiveness, we're in essence saying, we'll pay. We'll pay the cost of your offense. I'll take that on. You don't need to live in such a way that you're burdened down by what you've done. I'll take that. I'll pay. We'll act out of Christian humility to forego payment. We are not looking as believers to hold a grudge. It's not our default. It's not our bent. We aren't eager as believers to put someone in our debt. And then if someone sins against us and is in our debt, we're not content to leave them there. As believers, called to free them up. We're not eager to put anyone in our debt, and when someone is in our debt, they've sinned against us, we're not content to keep them there. The world around us lives and breathes on the idea that you owe me. That you owe me. You've wronged me, you've sinned against me, therefore you owe me. And as believers, what we're saying in extending mercy, forgiveness, and grace is that we won't make them pay. That we'll pay the cost, as it were. Forgiveness is costly. Requires humility. Requires going beyond what we may think or feel is right in a given situation, even as we entrust God with the outcomes. That he'll restore a relationship. That he'll put things back together in the right. But we'll also entrust God that forgiveness frees us up as well. Because here's the warning at the end of our passage. The forgiveness is costly, yet unforgiveness is probably more so. Forgiveness is costly, but harboring unforgiveness is probably more so. You know, there are pretty remarkable studies out now. I was reading a few this week from Johns Hopkins on the physiological effects of harboring bitterness and unforgiveness. Experientially, we know this too, how burdened we feel when we hold on to offense toward others, how it physically and mentally, emotionally wears us down, and that's certainly a reality. And so unforgiveness in that way, it's, it's physically costly. And yet, Jesus' indication here in the passage moves beyond what's physically detrimental. But we keep that as a consideration. Beyond what's physically detrimental, Jesus considers an unwillingness to forgive spiritually deadly. That it burdens our hearts in such a way that it holds us back from living the lives that God has called us to live. In forgiving, we release the offending party from their burdens and we unburden ourselves in the process. Perhaps that's what someone in this room is needing today. That forgiveness, in your case, as you think about that situation, the one that's been on your mind since I got up here and said forgiveness, as you're processing that situation, perhaps forgiveness, in your case, is not only demonstrating love, mercy, kindness that Jesus has demonstrated toward you, 
but it's also a sense of unburdening yourself, freeing yourself to love, just in mercy, grace, forgiveness toward people in your life around you that you're unable to right now because of that that you're holding on to. If you are in that situation, let me remind you today that in his great kindness, God has given you all that you need to engage that process. Thinking about the people around you, the church that you're a part of, loving brothers and sisters who can come alongside you. The more we begin to see issues of offense and forgiveness in these terms, the nearer we get to the heart of Christ and the beating center of the gospel message. When I put this in terms of we'll pay the debt, I'll take that on, I'm speaking Jesus to you. Because Jesus in his life, his death, resurrection said they won't pay. I will. We get nearer to the heart of the gospel message. So what does this mean for all of us? As a means of response, as we process how we might apply. For the unbelieving person in the room, this means for you today, right now, that God's offer of his mercy, his forgiveness, his grace is available to you today, right now. As you're hearing, we need to demonstrate grace and mercy, forgiveness, and the way that we've been shown grace, mercy, and forgiveness, it may not be apparent to you the way in which you have been shown the grace and mercy, love poured out by God through Jesus. And I want to remind you or tell you for the first time about that today, that we were created for God's glory, that we've sinned greatly against him. Now in his great love, his kindness, his mercy extended to us, the debt that we owed for our sin, he's not making us pay. That in Jesus' death, that sin has been paid for. And that you can receive Christ as your Lord and Savior today, putting your faith and your trust in him. For believing people in the room, this is two-part. If we're to forgive as we've been forgiven, then I want to reflect and want you to reflect at great length on the way that you've been forgiven, on the great lengths that God has gone to to forgive you, to meditate on the gospel and his grace toward you. When I consider all the ways, all the ways that I've sinned against God, all the offense toward God, and yet he still chose to forgive, postures my heart in such a way that my demonstration of, of grace, forgiveness toward others, is a more significant possibility. As we're pondering and meditating on the truth of the gospel, we go then and we forgive as we've been forgiven. In light of God's grace, his mercy, his demonstration of forgiveness toward us, our every day is now characterized by looking, searching for opportunities to demonstrate that grace, that love, that mercy toward others. This morning, as we think of reflecting on the gospel and this truth of God's mercy and grace poured out to us through Jesus, we have a fantastic opportunity as once a month we celebrate or take part in, participate in the Lord's Supper together. So we'll do that and Curtis will come in just a few moments and lead us in that. And I wanna encourage you as a means of response to in this moment, consider the great lengths God has gone to to forgive you of your sin and how that might reflect on the way that you demonstrate love, mercy, and forgiveness toward others. Let me pray for us.